The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma incomparably profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it, we can listen to it, we can embrace and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. Good evening, everyone. About 20-some years ago, I had the privilege to meet and befriend a Franciscan friar known in the Catholic Church quite well, by the name of Father Richard War, And over the years, we kept in touch. And like so many other uh, teachers uh, in the world, he uh, responded to the election. And I thought I'd start this evening uh, to set the context of our conversation tonight. And I want to begin by what he wrote to his uh, Catholic brothers and sisters. Beside the streams of Babylon, we sat and wept, trying to remember Mount Zion. Every four years, a significant portion of the United States is disappointed with the outcome of our national election. Still, this election has felt different. There was a palpable fear and anger leading up to the election day, and for many, it has grown even stronger. This fear is felt deeply by those who are most vulnerable in our country. As a follower of both Jesus and Francis, my primary moral viewpoint is not based in the well-being of those who are on top, but first in those who are on the bottom. For the vulnerable who have now been rendered more vulnerable, I lament and pray and promise to stand with you. A time of national introspection must begin with self-introspection. Without our own inner searching, any of our guests, any of our quests for solutions and policy fixes will be based in shifting sands. I suspect that we get the leaders who mirror what we have become as a nation. They are our shadow self for all to see. This is what the Jewish prophets told Israel before, both before and during their painful and long exile. Yet exile was the very time when the Jewish people went deep 
and discovered their prophetic voices, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, speaking truth to power, calling for justice. Their experience laid the solid foundation of Jesus' teaching and solidarity with the poor and the outcast. Maybe some of us naively thought that we could or should place our loyalty in any political agenda or party. Remember, Yahweh told Israel that they should never put their trust in princes, horses, or chariots, but only in the love of God. We must not imagine that political or pragmatic changes of themselves will ever bring about the goodness, charity, or transformation that the good news offers the world. Do not be afraid to allow conventional wisdom to fail and disappoint you, which is often the only path to wisdom. Imperial thinking focuses on judging who is worthy and who is unworthy, who is in and who is out. We who know about universal belonging and identity in God have a different form of power. Love, even of enemies, is our habitat, not the kingdom of this world. Our message is not primarily political. It is much more pre-political and post-political, with huge social political implications. We thus need to rebuild from the bottom up this election has solidified in us an urgent commitment, a work of action and contemplation, which now seems needed more than ever before. Grounding social action in contemplative consciousness is not a luxury for a few, but surely a cultural necessity. Both the Christian religion and American psyche now need deep cleansing and healing, and I do not say that lightly. Only a contemplative mind can hold our fear, confusion, vulnerability, and anger, and guide us toward love. Let's use this milestone moment to begin again with confidence and true inner freedom, and to move out into the world with compassion. Thomas Merton. And before I read this, I want you to consider that he wrote these words in 1960. One of the great tragedies of our time is that our desperate incapacity to cope with the complexities of our world, we oversimplify every issue and reduce it to a neat ideological formula. Doubtless, we have to do something in order to grasp things quickly and effectively. But unfortunately, this quick and effective grasp too often turns out to be no grasp at all, or only a grasp on a shadow. The ideological formulas for which we are willing to tolerate and even provide for the destruction of entire nations 
may one day reveal themselves to have been the most complete deceptions. Martin Luther King. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down by our capacity to endure suffering. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process. And a guy by the name of Sajaka Roshi. <laughs> if we are ever going to see any real change in the future for ourselves and our children, our priorities are going to need some review. We cannot any longer afford the luxury of what people call my life. The delusion that somehow I live apart from the rest of the world, that only I have so many hours in the day, that only I am so busy working and trying to place food on the table, that only I dream of a better world for my children. The future is going to require real changes within ourselves and the way we've been doing it. For more than ever, these words leave us with a resounding clue to the first and necessary reflection on the direction we must take. Quote, the surest way to have life go on the way it has up until now, resulting in where we find ourselves in this nation and in the world today, is to keep doing it the way we have been doing it. We must find that soft spot within us, our place of compassion, and widen the circle of its reach to include our neighbor, our neighborhood, the stranger, the inconvenient, and the uncomfortable. We must resolve to return to, or establish for the first time, a commitment to living our lives in holiness and for the benefit of all the many beings including the whole of nature. If we do not, humanity will most certainly be extinct. The surest way to have your life go on the way it always has is to keep doing it the way you have done it. These words point not only to the necessary paradigm that each of us need to adapt seriously once and for all for the future, but also speaks to a fundamental teaching in Buddhism that is often referred to as karma. November 8th was karma. It did not happen overnight. And it was not just about the election of one man, perhaps all of us in this room, oppose. It was about the results of a nation that, for at least as I tried to measure it, the past 40 or more years, fell into an illusion that gave birth to an individualism 
that rose to the level of the pathological and resulted with the election of November 8th. Fundamental to all Buddhist teaching as the means towards bringing cessation from suffering and also fundamental in psychotherapy is that in order to end suffering or to resolve some emotional or psychological problem, we need to first admit we have one. Second, we need to own the problem. We need to own the results of this election if we have any possibility of transforming those results in the days ahead. And we need to begin by, as Richard Rohr began telling us, Merton continued to point to, Martin Luther King, and yes, even my own words suggested on Facebook two or three days ago, we need to go inward first and reflect on a very inconvenient and uncomfortable question. And that is, how did I contribute to what happened on November 8th? Because make no mistake about it, whether we like to hear it or not, if we don't hear it, whatever effort we put forward in the days ahead to truly save humanity, to save whatever this nation really could be, and to save hum uh, the human race throughout the world, any effort we put forward in the days ahead must begin and must be rooted in, must be based in, a contemplative reflection on how I contribute to suffering and cause its causes in the world. I suggest to you that Donald Trump became President of the United States one of two ways. You either voted for him, okay, or our indifference to the suffering of others in this country and throughout the world made it possible for those results to happen. And that if we are going to make any real changes in the future, we need to get serious about how each of us, without exception, no matter how small we may think of ourselves, no matter how great we may think of ourselves, each of us, without ex exception, have a part in making the future, just as we had a part in making the past. It is not enough to be angry. It is good to be angry. Feel your anger and get over it. It is not enough to be resentful. I am. Get over it. It is not enough to just complain. In fact, as the rabbi and I were talking about it earlier, one of the statistics that came out of an effort to understand what happened on November 8th showed that 50% of Americans did not vote. 50%, half of this country did not vote. And my message to them is you don't get to complain. You're saying. But it's not enough to just complain. And it certainly isn't going to solve anything to just be mad. So as Richard War's word suggests, we need to start from the bottom again and we need to find the healing within ourselves and the courage within ourselves to once and for all, as Merton suggests, 
as, again, Martin Luther King's words, and I want to read something else to you that I brought with me to share with you that really jumped out at me uh, when I find refuge in his teachings. Um, just give me a moment to find it. One of the great tragedies of life is that men seldom bridge the gulf between practice and profession, between doing and saving. A persistent schizophrenia leaves so many of us tragically divided against ourselves. On the one hand, we proudly profess certain sublime and noble principles, but on the other hand, we sadly practice the very antithesis of these principles. How often are our lives characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds? We talk eloquently about our commitment to the principles of Christianity, and yet our lives are saturated with the practices of paganism. We proclaim our devotion to democracy, but we sadly practice the very opposite of the democratic creed. We talk passionately about peace, and at the same time we assiduously prepare for war. We make our fervent pleas for the high road of justice, and then we tread unflinchingly the low road of injustice. This strange dichotomy, this agonizing gulf between the ought and the is represents the tragic theme of man's earthly pilgrimage. So one of the Buddhist, more popular Buddhist teachers in America uh, came out with her response and part of it was to tell us Buddhists we don't get to practice our vows just with good people. And that is where we must begin. If ever before in the history of mankind, there has never been, in my opinion, a more opportune time and a more necessary time for us to get serious about, as Martin Luther King's words suggest, what we claim we believe in, what we claim we want for ourselves, and what we want for the world. And the seriousness needs to begin with us bringing to fruition. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. And the true meaning of this Tathagata is something you either believe in or you don't believe in. And that is, we are never going to defeat hatred with hatred. We are never going to defeat bigotry with our own unique form of bigotry. We are never going to defeat racism, homophobia, misogyny, and all the rest with anything else but loving kindness and compassion. We can disagree with the people in power, which every one of them in this room I will consider do, as I do. But it is not the people in power alone that bring about the suffering and the causes of suffering. We need to own this country we need to own the power we all possess, and we need to take responsibility for that power and get down to the business, as I once wrote in one of my newsletters several months ago, 
The world does not need great leaders. The world needs lovers getting down to the business of loving others. And that includes, again, as Merton said, our enemies. That includes those of the opposition. That includes those we so easily can categorize into the bad people, and they themselves need that love more than anyone. I woke up, I went to bed early that night of the election. I was too tired to stay up, and by then it was evident to me that at least I suspected what was coming. So I went to sleep that night, and when I woke up the following morning at 4 o'clock, as I do every morning to prepare the Zendo, I flipped on the TV and heard the news. And I was shocked, but not by the news. I was shocked by my response to the news, by my reaction to the news. And you need to know that the words that I uttered even surprised me. I said, well, back to work. You see? Back to work. Nothing changed. Everything changed and nothing changed. All that happened on November 8th for me was that it all finally came to the surface. What we saw, what, whether knowingly or willingly or consciously, what Donald Trump did was he brought to the surface the whole thing, the whole mess. Now it's our job to clean it up. It's our job to heal it. And it's our job to put the beast back into the cage, if you will. Several days later, I watched Donald Trump sit with President Barack Obama in the Oval Office. And I was sharing this with the rabbi before we came out. And again, I was surprised by my response, by what welled up in me. And as I saw him, maybe you did also, sitting there next to the president, I saw a frightened man. I saw a humbled man. And I, my heart went out to him. I felt sorry for this man I resented for a year and a half. I felt deeply sorry for him. And I felt how terrible he must be feeling right now because he's probably sitting there thinking, what the hell did I do? You know, never realizing what he was getting into. So in Buddhism we vow, every day of my life I will encounter innumerable beings. I vow to love them all. Every day of my life I will engage inextinguishable desires, including the desire to hate and to resent and to blame and to shame. I vow to extinguish them all. The Dharma teachings are everywhere, including in Donald Trump. I vow to learn them and master them. The Buddha way, the way of the enlightened, is endless. And wherever it takes me, I vow to go. So I had the same reaction. Um, surprised, not shocked, I saw it coming. And in line with what the Roshi told you, I want to hopefully give you a little bit more insight about how that process of what some of us call the shadow, how that all works. So when people come for spiritual development, I've been teaching spiritual development, spiritual direction for um, about 40 years. And one of the things we deal with is what in psychology and in other places they call the shadow nature. And the shadow nature 
is the part of us that we absolutely deny exists. Our feelings, our beliefs, our ideas, our attitudes towards the world, that we absolutely, we, we would go to our death and, and never, never, never admit that those things exist. And what happens is as we keep those things buried within us, they cause all kinds of problems, especially when they start to surface. And eventually when they surface, they motivate us to do those horrible things that we didn't think we would ever do, we wind up doing. And instead of taking ownership of them, what we do is we project them. One of the ideas behind shadow is that we project shadow. So it's not, for instance, if you have issues of being angry, say, at your parents, and that you cannot accept being angry at your parents, so you bury that, then what usually happens eventually is you decide, everybody's angry with me. Why is everybody always angry at me, with me? And as you go further through it, especially if you learn to meditate, you get to a place where you say, it's not that I'm angry, it's just that there is anger. And you dissociate from that. That eventually manifests as physical problems, psychological problems, all kinds of things that happen in your life. And the way around it, not around it, but the way to deal with it is to acknowledge and to dig out the shadow elements, to dig those deep psychological elements out from yourself and allow them to manifest and be honest that you really, really feel that way. And I believe that that's what's happened to us as a country. We buried, for the longest time, we as a country stood here and said, we're not prejudiced, the police are honest, we have the best political system in the world, we have the best educational system in the world, we have the best medical system in the world. And all these things that if somebody would have come to us, and people occasionally did rise up and say, no, you don't, and we, we squelched those voices, we silenced those voices, because we are the greatest, and we have always been the greatest, and we continue to be the greatest, instead of looking at the true issues of what's going on with us. And that started manifesting as, well, we are seeing more prejudice. We are seeing dishonest police. We are seeing corrupt politicians. We're not at the top when it comes to the countries of the world in life expectancy. We're not in the top in medical treatment any longer. We're definitely not in the top in education. We're not. There are, there are quite a few countries ahead of us. So, but we maintain this idea that, no, no, we are the best, we are the best, we are the best. And that causes all kinds of, for the individual, causes psychological and physical issues. And for the country, you saw what it caused. And eventually, what happened is we had to make a decision. We're either going to deal with these shadow elements and acknowledge them and deal with them and make them better, or we're going to bury them and become great again and bury everything that says you're not great again. No, no, we're great. We're going to make America great again. Bury all those other elements, and that's what's happened. So it's not a surprise. It wasn't a surprise for me. And Roshi brings up this issue that the work of a of spiritually um, aware people is the same, no matter what the situation on the ground is. You know, boy, have we Jews been through a lot right? Historically, 
And, and what is it that we kept doing? We just kept saying, we need to, to, to allow ourselves to fight for being the best and for, for making the best in the world and helping the world to be as moral and ethical and, and right and, and proper as possible. And to go on. And that, whether we're being killed in the Holocaust or kicked out of England or kicked out of Spain or, or fighting with, with Arabs in our midst, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The mission remains the same. The re mission remains the same. Uh, somebody on uh, Facebook put, said something about, um, it's not the time for understanding. It's not the time for us to reach out with love. By the time we get people to understand and we reach out with love, it'll be too late. So you have to be like, you have to do what Yoda says. Uh, there is no try. There is only do. So we have to do and not just try. So I wrote back, I said, yeah, but you're missing something. Yoda would say, do based on what? Discernment. Based on what? Discernment. Well, I don't know if Yoda, Yoda, I think Roshi might say that. I think I might say that, but I don't know if Yoda would say that. What is, what is Yoda's base, base everything that you do on? The force. Right? So before you can do, you have to be aware of the force, and, and, and the force for us is spiritual awareness, is divine awareness, is Buddha nature. That's the force. So yes, act, but make sure you know what you're doing first. And then knowing what you're doing is to act with the consciousness, the kind of consciousness that the Roshi speaks of, the consciousness of love, the consciousness of one being, of one taste, of everything in the universe being one. So I'm reaching in my pocket for a paper, but I'm remembering the story. You know, we have the story in Judaism that you're supposed to carry two pieces of paper in your pocket, right, from Scripture. So one piece of paper is supposed to say, I made you a little less than the angels. You are divine beings a little less than the angels, according to Psalms. And in the other pocket, it's supposed to have a piece of paper that says, you came from dust and ashes, and to dust and ashes you'll return. So if you're feeling particularly inflated and egotistical, and wow, I'm really, really great, you pull out the piece of paper that says you came from dust and ashes. And if you're feeling particularly down, and particularly not holy, not divine, you pull out the paper that says, I made you a little less than angels. You're divine. But I wanted to share with you, first this is a, a brief statement from the um, late Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was the Rebbe of the very, very religious Jews. He died back in the 90s. And this is what he said, and I think it's, it's been sort of the, the mantra of today for me. If you see what needs to be repaired and how to repair it, then you found a piece of the world that God has left for you to complete. But if you only see what is wrong and how ugly it is, then it is you yourself that needs repair. So, boy, talk about getting your money's worth tonight, you know? I mean, that's the essence of it all. If you, cease, if you go out into the world and you keep yourself in, in your spiritual nature and centered and you see something wrong and you know this is what I need to do, Roshi talks often about just instinctually doing such things. This is what needs repair. This is what needs to be addressed. This is what needs to be said. So you can do it. Just like that. But if you look at something and you're tempted 
to go on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and start yelling about it, then you need to look at yourself. You need to look at to see. Because there's a psychological, back to psychology, there's a psychological principle that says we don't recognize in others what we actually don't see in ourselves. When you look at somebody and say, can you believe that person there? It's because you're noticing that in yourself, maybe on a shadow level, so you'll never admit it. The example I often give my students is if somebody comes to you and says, you're a pink elephant with purple dots, how many of you would get so angry you'd hit him? What would your reaction be? It's ridiculous. A pink elephant with purple dots? I'm not a pink elephant with purple dots. That's ridiculous. But if somebody comes to you and says, you're selfish, you're lazy, you don't give enough, you don't work hard enough, and you react, how come you react to that? Because you don't feel it's as ridiculous. There's a part of you. So act in the world, especially with what's going on, Follow your spiritual practices, meditation and other things we'll speak of. Follow your spiritual technologies and allow that to make you who you are in the world. And that's how you react to things rather than by recognizing ugliness. The other thing I want to share with you is my personal affirmation. I had the pleasure of studying for a while with Dan Millman. He wrote The Peaceful Warrior series, so he was my teacher, and I spent some time with him, and he wrote the following. Wake up, wake up. Soon the person you believe you are will die. So now wake up and be content with this knowledge. There's no need to search. Achievement leads to nowhere. It makes no difference at all, so just be happy now. Love is the only reality of the world because it is all one, you see. And the only laws are paradox, humor, and change. There is no problem. There never was, there never will be. So release your struggle, let go of your mind, throw away your concerns and relax into the world. No need to resist life, just do your best. Open your eyes and see that you are far more than you imagine. You are the world. You are the universe. You are yourself. You are everyone else, too. It's all the marvelous play of God. Wake up. Regain your humor. Don't worry. Be happy. You're already free. So there are two sayings in Zen. The first is, you either go with the flow or you will be drugged. So I think it would be safe to say that we all were dragged, if you will, to where we need to be. Make no mistake about it. A lot of people talk about the notion there are no accidents, that everything is designed that there's a reason and a purpose. And yet on November 8th, a lot of people were not saying that, who I was speaking to. They saw this event as oppositional, as something that should have never happened. People talked for months how it could not happen, just possibly could not happen. 
So my objective tonight is to offer to you an optional view of not only what happened on November 8th, but an optional view of the future. And if we do believe that everything has a reason and a purpose, and that the entire universe, as science teaches us, whether you believe it or not, operates out of a law of cause and effect. So that is to say, there were particular causes, as we reflected on a few moments ago, both the rabbi and I, that brought about the results of November 8th. And we cannot ignore those causes, because one of the problems with conventional approach, again, one of those ways of doing it, that we have to stop doing it that way, is that we are always treating the symptoms in this country and never getting to the root causes of our suffering. We see that in medical science, we see that in social science, and we see that in spirituality. So if we believe that everything has a reason and a purpose, we are exactly where we need to be in the conscious evolutionary process for human beings. So let us assume for a moment this is the best opportune place to be right now where we find ourselves soon to inaugurate the 45th president of the United States who we all would wish not be the one on that stage on that day. The other saying in Zen is even if the sun were to rise in the west the Bodhisattva knows only one way. And on November 8th, certainly for so many people, the sun rose in the West. And that saying, if you're not sure what it means, points to the catastrophic events that would take place in the universe if that were to happen. If the sun were to rise in the West rather than the East, everything would be destroyed almost immediately. But even in the face of that, the Bodhisattva, the spiritual warrior, the moral and ethical person still knows one way only and follows that way. Every single person in this room, myself included, has etched in our memories those certain historical events that we experienced and witnessed as children that live with us all of our lives. The assassination of John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, 9-11, uh, whatever your generation may be. I remember one day coming home from school and turning on the television to witness the news broadcast of the Freedom uh, Riders in Montgomery, Alabama being beaten back by the police force. You may have seen that uh, news broadcast of the fire hoses and the dogs attacking them and people running for their lives, and the police beating everybody with their nightsticks and so forth. Years later, as that remained etched in my head, I read these words that I shared with you again, and I want you, if you remember that scene, to call it to mind now as I read to you these words, once again by Martin Luther King. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. 
but we will soon wear you down by our capacity to endure suffering. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process. With that memory of that scene on that day in Alabama and these words, I remember just being frozen in time, thinking, how is that possible? How could those people endure that suffering and refuse to respond with violence and hatred and bitterness? How was that possible? How it was possible was not as important as it was possible. And that possibility exists in all of us. And in that period in time, that possibility changed the entire nation changed the entire nation. And I wondered often about the people who were trained to take those buses from the Northeast and travel down into the South and put their bodies and their lives on the line for a purpose much larger than themselves, how they must have thought the day before that march, aware of what probably and what most certainly happened to them to come, and how they shook with fear and how they may have wanted to run away, and how they may have wanted to, yes, respond with violence. But even though the sun had rose on that morning in the West for them, they knew only one way. John Lennon wrote these words shortly before he was assassinated. When it gets down to having to use violence, then you are playing the system's game. The establishment will irritate you, pull your beard, flick your face, to make you fight. Because once they've got you violent, then they know how to handle you. The only thing they don't know how to handle is nonviolence and humor. If we are going to respond to the policies and the proposals of the princesses and palaces in the days ahead, we need to do the work of nonviolence, loving kindness, and compassion within ourselves first. Because I can only give to you what I have. I can only share with you what I have. And I can only be what I am within out here in the world. The way we have done it in the past is to go out into the world and try to change the content of the world out here. And time and time again, we've returned to this very place we find ourselves now. We must be willing to do it differently, but not so different that it is unfamiliar to us because it is the ancient teachings since time past forever, since the beginningless past, that resoundingly returns to us again today and says, our response to what has happened in this nation must be a conviction, a commitment, and a willingness on our part to do the work of loving kindness and compassion, to cultivate the ground within us, to where, like those freedom fighters on those lines in Alabama, were willing to even lose their lives, were willing to even die for. We must train and practice and be committed to that level or as Lenin's words suggest to us we're dealing with experts 
who know how to handle the violent part of us better than we know how to handle it, apparently. And so we must become strong. For nearly 40 years now, I have preached again and again and again. I sit on this cushion because it is here that I train and prepare to be in the world. The work that I do in this cushion, the work that I do as a monk, the internal training that I commit to, even after 40 years, recommitting every morning to come into the zendo, to sit in the zendo, to train myself to be quiet, to be still, to be open, to be loving, to be kind, to pray for all the many beings, and not just the ones that I like and who like me. That training makes it possible for me to meet the challenges of everyday life. The other day, I picked up my daughter uh, after we went to a parent-teacher conference, and we drove to uh, um, Justice to get her a, an outfit. And so we pulled into the parking lot, and as we pulled into the parking space, uh, I noticed, and she apparently noticed, uh, a shopping cart in two or three spaces over sitting in the middle of the parking space in the parking space itself. As we were walking to the store, I noticed the shopping cart. I saw the shopping cart. She saw the shopping cart. She went over to the shopping cart and she said, Daddy, I want to take this up there because God forbid if anyone has an accident hitting this. I won't want that to happen. She's seven years old. They get it. We got to get it. We got to get that community is the guiding light. As I said on Facebook, that reading that I shared with you a moment ago, we need to expand, and I take this from what Einstein said. Einstein said our reality, which is the only truth that can set us free, he said is that each of us are part of a whole, that each of us, as the rabbi said a few moments ago, are each other. Each of us are one another. And we are the stars and the planets and the cosmos and everything else. But we're never going to know the stars and the planets and the cosmos if we never know what it means to be one as human beings. And each of us need to be about the business of being concerned for each other. My teachers started very young for me. My mother was my first teacher. We lived in a row home in northeast Philadelphia. And everybody in that neighborhood at that time knew each other. Everybody knew each other, so that you know, kids played out in the streets till the dark and after the dark, and nobody was ever concerned of any harm coming to them uh, in any possibility, because God forbid if a stranger came down that street, everybody knew it, and everybody was outside to watch everybody else's kid, and so forth. And every time someone got sick in our neighborhood or lost their job, I came home and I knew that someone was sick or had lost their job because on my mother's stove, with two pots of gravy with meatballs in them. One was for us, and the other was for that neighbor. That's it. And my mother would just simply say, the Joneses are sick. They gotta eat. Mr. Jones can't get to work. They gotta eat. And she would make me carry the pot of gravy and meatballs over to them. Community is the spirit, the guiding light whereby we come together for a purpose larger than ourselves, And that purpose larger than ourselves has reared its face into us on November 8th and looked at us straight in the face again and said, what are you going to do about this? 
It is the guiding light, it is the force, it is the means, it is the way whereby we devote universally to this purpose larger than ourselves. We devote to supporting each other in each individual purpose. In the rabbi's beautiful reading from the Rebbe, we fix that thing instead of just walking by it and ignore it. We take care of business and we take care of each other. If we don't, if we don't, I think this time it will all be gone. And once it's gone, it will be forever gone. Roshi spoke about the ridiculousness of, of force versus love. And I remind people that since I've been alive, there's never been a military victory that resulted in peace since I've been on this earth in my entire life. You could argue maybe that happened in 1945, but since then, Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf Wars, wars in the Middle East, what military action created peace in the world? None of it. So you'd think we'd learn by now that, that's, that to look in a different direction, that that direction does not work. Does not work. I'm not sure that we found what does work. We have a feeling. We have a... It's more than a feeling. You know, the universe goes from subatomic particles to atoms to molecules to cells to organs to to human beings or to all beings to all biological beings to biological systems and so on so there's what what causes that what is that that universal cause that causes things to join together and be more inclusive so i would say that evolution of the universe is that which is taking us to greater inclusivity if you want to know which direction should I move in, who should I vote for, where should I go, what should I study, the question is, is it more or less inclusive? That becomes, because not because it's a matter of opinion. I, it's not an opinion that atoms join together to form molecules. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. So things enter into greater and greater complexity and greater and greater inclusivity. And that's the direction that... If, if you're either for or against the evolution of the universe, and we want you to be for it, we want you to join in efforts that will help in greater inclusivity. But, you got, but you, in order to know what will work best, you have to know the force, right? You have to know what it is, what's the universe trying to tell you? What's the message in the universe that it's trying to tell you? So Dan Martin, as I, uh, Dan Martin, um, Dan Millman, as I quoted to you, said that the only laws of the universe, he says, are paradox, humor, and change. The paradox of the universe is, aren't we all one? Haven't we all been here since the beginning of all time? Show me your face before your parents were born. What is it of you that's been, that's, that was the same a week ago, a year ago, uh, 10 years ago, 500 years ago, at the Big Bang? We haven't changed since then. And yet, we're physical beings. And yeah, it does hurt if I get punched in the nose. If, if somebody once, um, uh, when I was um, studying with Ken Wilber, somebody once said to him, it's all one, and feelings and physicality is all an illusion. And he punched the guy in the nose. 
And the guy said, ow, oh my god, I'm ble bleeding. And Ken said, no, it's an illusion. <laughs> you're not really, you're not feeling pain, or, and that's not really blood, it's an illusion. So the paradox is both exist simultaneously. There is a oneness to the universe. We are, we are all part of that oneness. Some of us know it more clearly than others. That's the only difference. Are some of us more one than others? No. Some of us are more aware of the oneness than others. That's the only difference. And are we also finite beings that are born and going to die? Yeah. That's the paradox that we're dealing with. Is this a situation politically that we should worry about? Yes. And like Roshi said, and then get over it and move on because we're eternal beings. And we need to deal with this in terms of eternity, in terms of karma as well. What's the, and, and if you think about it, that's kind of funny. You know, it's, it's funny that we're, oh, what am I going to do about my job? Uh, excuse me, you're an eternal being. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's pretty funny. I'm worried about my job. I'm an eternal being. So Roshi and I, we've known each other now for probably about 25 years, and we've had a lot of discussions about these kinds of things. And I, I have to tell you, we do a lot of laughing. We do a lot of laughing because there's a lot of humor. And humor is what keeps us light. And, and humor, even in this political situation, as long as it's good-natured humor, you know, some of the humor gets very, very, very nasty and very, very negative and dark. But good-natured humor that we're seeing sometimes, that, that helps. That, that humor about our infinite existence and our finite existence. And sometimes it gets very funny. And finally, change. King Solomon goes to his wise men, his wise guys, and he says, I want something engraved on a ring that will always be true. So they, they come up with this, they come up with that, they come up with this, and finally they, they can't agree on anything. And they come back to King Solomon and they say, we can't, we can't, there's nothing we can think of that's always true, always true. And King Solomon says to them, there's one thing that's always true. This too shall change. So changes that we see in the universe, the question is, how do you deal with changes? I often have what I, I call the surfboard analogy. You know, life is like riding a surfboard. What most people do is they stand in the waves and they get battered and they complain. Oh, I don't want to be wet. Slam. Oh, I don't want to be cold. Slam. And there's a, you have a surfboard, your spiritual practice, your spiritual nature. Get on the surfboard. Now, I haven't surfed. Maybe it's something I'll do still someday. But I, I bet it's not real easy. And it takes balance and it takes some skill. So you need to do the spiritual practice that's necessary in order to stay on that surfboard. Now, if you're on the surfboard and you're surfing, you get to stay on the surfboard forever? No. What happens? You fall off. You get pounded by the waves. You could sit there and be wet and complain, or you can get back on the surfboard. The other thing I tell people is that when you're on that surfboard surfing towards shore, you can't go that way, and you can't go that way, and you can't go that way. You can only, you have so much freedom in terms of where you can go in life, where you can be guided to go in life. But our task, even with what's happening now, is to get back on the surfboard. If you've fallen off, if, if, if your life is just complaining and complaining and complaining. There's an old man, 
sitting, I think I may have told this story last time, the old man sitting on the bus and he's saying, oh, am I thirsty, oh, am I thirsty. And they can't take it anymore. So this lady gets up, there's a water cooler in the back of the bus and she, she gives him some water. He looks at her, thank you. And he drinks the water and he goes, Oh, I was so thirsty. You have no idea how thirsty I I was. And he doesn't shut up. So Roshi and I were discussing earlier. It, it reminds me of a dog with a chew toy. You know, we get into this, you know, I'm so upset about the political situation. On our chew toy. And whether we're pro or con, whether we're, we're right wing or left wing, we get stuck with the chew toy. And we have to learn to give up the chew toy. Or chew the toy and be, do it consciously. Do it mindfully. Be able to say, today I'm upset, today I'm angry, and I'm mindful. I'm taking the position of the witness, and I'm watching myself experience these things in life. But we all will be going through the, this paradox, humor, and change, the laws of the universe. So, about humor for a moment, I have one for you. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so, uh, I'm not healthy, as some of you already know. I've got heart and lung issues going on, but the work must go on around here. So, the fall season brings the leaves. And so today I decided to put on the backpack and go outside and work on the leaves. And... I spent about an hour and a half out there doing that work and regretted it afterwards. So I started out the front door here with the leaf blower and I manicured the area out front here and went all the way down the driveway like I always do, went around the peace path like I did. And this time I went around the peace path this way rather than from the entrance way out uh, at the beginning of the drive. And maybe that's the reason why. So I finished the peace path and I'm coming back up exhausted, tired, able to, hardly able to breathe from the debris and everything and on as I approached this area again, covered with leaves. <laughs> and I saw them coming down. And all I could do was laugh. And I said, thank you, Brother Oak. <laughs> you know, covered with leaves. Everything I had just cleared out of the way so that you could have a beautiful drive when you came in today uh, was just covered up by the leaves. That morning of the election when I woke up and I heard it and I went to Facebook because my phone was off the hook with emails. What do we do now? What do we do now? Blah, 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 blah. So I went on to type my response. Some of you may have read it and what have you. And at the end of it, I, if you read it, you saw I included the words, as I looked outside, the sun was coming up. So one of the exercises I often give in my students over the years is to find a large field one night when the stars and the moon is shining bright and look up at the sky and tell the planets and the stars your complaints. Pretty funny. And the ancient philosopher once wrote, on the day of my own liberation, it happened simultaneously at that moment that I realized the benign indifference of the universe to my complaints. So there is always, as the rabbi just referred to, the big picture and the little picture. And the key in Buddhism is to find that balance between the two. To always remember that despite what happened on November 8th, it will change. 
If we do nothing about it, it will change. If we do something about it, it will change. Change, most definitely, is the only permanent reality of the universe. But as collaborators, as uh, Deschardins says we are, collaborators in creation, we have the power to decide what that change will look like. But that power remains dormant if we do not use it. Like anything else, if you fail to use it, you lose it. Like the 50 million Americans, the 50% of Americans who did not vote have no right to be complaining today, you're saying. You need to get engaged. Not only engaged with the opposition to those policies and, and, and legislations and decisions that are inevitably going to come, they've already began to set up the process for it to happen, but you need to get engaged on the cushion, on your knees, in your church, in your synagogue, in your homes, and in your neighborhood. Martin Luther King. Today our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. The large house in which we live demands that we transform this worldwide neighborhood into a worldwide brotherhood and sisterhood. Together we must learn to live as brothers and sisters, or together we will be forced to perish as fools. We must work passionately and indefatigably to bridge the gulf between our scientific process and our moral process. One of the great problems of mankind is that we suffer from a poverty of spirit which stands in glaring contact, contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. The richer we have become materially, the poorer we have become morally and spiritually. And we must correct that now. Your turn. I think I'm done. <laughs> no, their turn. Their turn. You are their turn. done. I'm done. <laughs> Your turn. Pardon me for being a cynic, but if this presentation had been given to the Jews of Poland and Germany in 1938 and 1939, how would you expect them to behave? <laughs> I told you. <laughs> you were you yeah. up. You warned me. Um, it, say, if this had happened to the Jews of Mexico. No, if this presentation become realizing that change is coming, change is going to happen, you've got to do something to make it change, uh, leave in uh, Providence, God, right. and uh, bear the suffering because we can bear the suffering as long as we can dish it out. Right. And we see what happens. Well, I would, I would assume that people would mostly be very upset by it, but I, I wouldn't say the message is a false message. So I would, I would agree that most... Forget Jews 1938-1939. Go, go out to the world now and say, look, um, this is the situation we have. 
What are you going to do about it? What are the choices? What are the choices as to what, what can be done about it? I mean, what were the choices that, that the Jews had at well, those times? The, Wasn't much choice. in the Warsaw Ghetto made right. a choice. Right. And they, and they stood up for three, four days, mm -hmm. and, and they died trying. But most of the other Jews didn't stand up because the, the Nazis did a wonderful job hiding it from them. Remember, the Jews didn't know the stuff was going on. And that's one of the reasons they were being relocated and all this was happening. So the message, even though not emotionally satisfying, is the same. In fact, the message in, in, in our religion, in, in the Jewish religion, is the same. When the prophets came along and said, look, your countries are being devastated. This is the way God wrote it. This is what's happening. This is the way God wrote it. We cry for you. We, we mourn with you. We're upset with you. But that's the way it's going to be. So I'm not arguing that they may not like the message. They may not like hearing this. Look, things are going to be the way they are. And by the way, that may be result in the destruction of many of you. But that's the way the world works. And the choice that they have, this is, this is where uh, Viktor Frankl comes in. You know, the, the psychiatrist, psychologist Viktor Frankl who came in, who said, if you keep striving for survival and you have meaning in life, and that's what Roshi and I are talking about, if you have a meaning in life and something to live for, your chances of survival are greater. They're not guaranteed, but they're greater. And that's so, so we're, in a sense, preaching things on the same level, sort of in the same way as Viktor Victor Frankl did, by saying to have faith, uh, not because having faith is going to absolutely save you from death, I think that's a false equivalency, but it, it stands a better chance of having us survive as a people, and the proof is it absolutely worked. Our, our survival worked because of the people that were left kept the spirit and, and kept the, um, the faith in a sense. On the other hand, what, what, what was lost during the Holocaust was Judaism really, really turned away from spirituality as a result of the Holocaust. And um, one of the rabbis, Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, who I had the pleasure of studying with for many years, said one of the reasons that Zen and yoga and, and self-help and all these things became popular after World War II was because we Jews had lost our spiritual connections. And a lot of Jews went in that direction. When my teacher, Reb Zalman, was visiting Suzuki Roshi out in California, Suzuki Roshi said to him, I love the Jewish people. 95% of my students are Jewish. This was in the 60s. Because Jews had lost their faith because of Holocaust things and turned to other religions and practices. And while from a Jewish perspective that may seem as a negative, from a spiritual perspective, that turned out to be very positive. We learned about meditation. We advanced studies in Kabbalah. You know, rabbis started studying Zen Buddhism. So it became a positive thing. So on one hand, there's the emotional reaction. You know, we're back, we're back to the paradox. Look, all those souls that died in the Holocaust, they didn't die. They still exist. Okay? But all those horrible people and the children, the six million people, how could you say that? And the answer, as Roshi said, is to reach that balance. Both are true. It was a horrible, terrible, deadly thing which God forbid ever gets repeated again. And we're eternal beings that live forever. 
both are true. I get concerned that in this conversation we can, again, slip into missing a piece of this, that perhaps our own emotions about the situation prevent us from hearing. There was a lot more in this presentation than an approach of opposition that may come off or sound as passive, when in fact it is probably the most progressive uh, approach. So the piece that I also addressed uh, this evening is there was a cause for what has happened. Rather than focusing on the, on the um, um, uh, symptom, rather than focusing on the result and how we are going to oppose the enemy no matter what and disagree no matter what, let us focus on the causes that generated and cultivated the ground for what happened to have happened and change those causes. For example, again, the rabbi and I were talking about this earlier. Donald Trump exploited the real suffering of real people in this country. Okay? He exploited real suffering of real people in this country and ran with that. If there wasn't real suffering for real people in this country, his message would have had no power. Therefore, Buddhism teaches me, eliminate the cause. Eliminate the suffering. Let us focus on demanding uh, that our legislative representatives begin to focus on the most vulnerable in our society and stop demeaning them and demonizing them and pointing to them as the cause. Now, how are they able to do that? How are they able, how long have we heard, it's been at least in my uh, recollection, 40 some years, we have heard that the poor is the problem because they all live on food stamps, <laughs> that, that the elderly is the problem, that the kids are the problem, that the teachers are the problem, and so forth. Okay, how long have we heard that message and so forth? But again, it is those very people that rode that man into the White House. It is because there is poverty in America. It is because of the lack of real education. I mean, on Facebook, I battle regularly with some fool that, uh, you know, only problem is that they never read the Constitution, but talk about how this new party is going to defend the Constitution. You see? So let us eliminate poverty once and for all in this country. Let us attend to the sick and the elderly once and for all in this country. And that is only going to happen at the grassroots. It is only going to happen, for example, how many people in this room know more than one other person in this room tonight? How many of you said hello to that person that you may have known? You see? How many of you will go home tonight and return some other time and never even communicate with that person in this room? How many of us know our neighbor next to us? This is what I'm talking about. We, you know, we go back to what Richard Rohr said. You know, ancient scriptures, God had always told the people of Israel, why are you so shocked by the princes and the palaces and the people in power disappointing you? That's what they do. And so to me, that message is we can no longer rely and expect the people in Washington to do the change that is necessary. We have to bring about the change. 
If we don't buy their products, they'll listen. If we don't harm each other, they don't know how to handle us. You see? If we become more loving to each other. I mean, this whole bit about, you know, uh, calling you know, names to the people that voted for Trump, that's what, that's what the powers to be want us to do, Lenin says. That they know how to handle. They send out the police and they beat you up and what have you. I mean, look what's happening in the, in the Dakota. You know, it's been going on for how long and so forth. So the message here is certainly not to take a stand, not to not take a stand, but take a stand with skillfulness and wisdom and wake up first. And we must wake up. If violence was the answer, then it, we, we, we violently opposed the Nazis. And it was the war to end all wars. Who's back in the White House? Next door, Roshi and I talk about humor. We were, and it's not all in jest. We were saying that we were going to pass out a piece of paper and, if, and have everybody register as Muslims. Right? right? That's, that's, that's going around. That, that there's a lot on Facebook and a lot of other places that if that kind of registry is required because that, that's the kind of action. That's an example of one thing that we can do is, is to stand up and oppose what's going on. Listen to these words by Martin Luther King. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction, vocal sanction of things as they are. And that is what we need to change. Whether you are Buddhist, Christian, Jew, humanist, atheist, you must realize that the message after all that campaigning, after all that effort, after years and years of philosophical, political, social, economical discussions, that's what it got you. What was missing was a commitment on my part, as it is for the Bodhisattva, that even if the sun rises in the west, even if it means an extra hour of losing sleep, getting off the sofa, whatever it is I have to do, to maintain an integrity of love and compassion within myself, for myself, and for others, that is where the only real change is going to come. It's not coming from anywhere else. Princes and principalities will always fail you. Those were the words of the prophets, not mine. Shikyo. Roshi, in your example, you mentioned the neighbors watching the other stranger in the neighborhood. And the, the problem I wrestle with is that I'm trying to figure out how to communicate and 
welcome that stranger. Mm -hmm. Because I think I think there's an ability for half the nation to to form their neighborhood, and then yeah. they don't know how to connect with the stranger. Well, the, the for me the solution is something we don't do even with friends as often as we should be doing: communicate. We need to learn not only communicate, but we need to learn how to communicate in a way that is welcoming and open to learn before we decide. Okay, so what in that story that I shared, what happened was people went out and introduced themselves to the stranger that came in the neighborhood, got to know who that stranger was, and then took it from there. It wasn't automatically decided that there was, you know, danger in the neighborhood, let's say which is what I think you're, you're talking about, all right? So we need to talk to the stranger. Mm -hmm. We need to stop turning our head from the poor and from the homeless and from the suffering and the vulnerable. We need to talk to that old man with dementia, even though it doesn't make any sense. We need to pray for the people who are taking care of those people with dementia, and on and on and on and on and on. We need to become, as again Martin Luther King said, this large house of ours needs to be transformed to where everybody's talking to each other. So my answer to, to, the, to the question about the stranger, we need to talk to the stranger. And we need, but first, we need to know how to talk to the stranger. We have forgotten how to talk to each other civilly. Someone has a different political opinion than us, and we're ready to call them Nazis, okay? I mean, I do agree with some of the stuff that came out that I don't believe that everybody who voted for Donald Trump was a Nazi or a racist or, or what have you. I think there were some desperate people in that bunch that, you know, would, you know one of the other statistics that came out was that everybody on the, on the uh, uh, Democratic side were fearful that the GOP was going to do what we're anticipating coming. But guess what? Everybody who voted for Donald Trump were fearful that Hillary Clinton was going to do something to ruin the country too. So all generated in fear. And why? Because for, what was it, a year and a half that campaign went on? We've been calling each other's names and nobody talking to each other. When they got on, the, when they got on those stages, they flicked names and accusations and, at, at each other, even, even of their own party members and all of that. What do we talk about, the size of their hands? You know, what the hell did that have to do with anything? And what have you. So we have to first learn how to really communicate, and then we have to communicate. That's what I think we need to do with the stranger. No? Rabbi Simon, I've got a question for you. Hi, Al. <laughs> Hi, Al. Hi, Al. Yeah, go ahead. Isn't there, do you feel there's a dichotomy uh, being, are you a Buddhist? And if, if by being a Buddhist, uh, being able to bow down to Buddha, and this is the first time I've come here in a Buddhist uh, environment. And does that, does Judaism, or you being a rabbi, is there that comedy that, 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 that uh, is there something that you can or you can't do? Or you should can I just first answer? Can I say something yeah. first? I've never bowed down to Buddha in my life. Never. That's right. I'm saying. I've never bowed down to Buddha in my He's life. not bowed to Buddha. We're not bowing to Buddha. No, you, you take it from there. So, so I want to say there's no dichotomy here. Um, because the practice here, the, the, and I, I don't 
it may not be a, the Zen Buddhist practice of the world or of Japan or of other places. And it's not. And it's not. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be that straight about it. It's not. But the Zen Buddhist practice here, as the Roshi has been teaching it all this year, all these years, is a very inclusive practice. Years ago, I said to Roshi, I want a Zen, please give me my own personal Zen Buddhist practice. And he said, okay. He said, you wake up in the morning. He said, and what do you call that book of prayers you have? You know, a prayer book, Sidor would say, right? So, okay, you take your prayer book. Then, what do you call that, that thing you put on? Uh, tully, prayer, prayer shawls. You put on your prayer shawl. What do you call those straps you wrap around the tefillin, right? Phylacteries, we, we, we get ready for prayer. And I said to him... I also mentioned that funny little... The little funny little hat, right, funny little hat. No, the box, the box. Oh, the box, that's yeah. the phylacteries, right, the box. And I stopped him and I said, no, 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 I want a Zen Buddhist practice. And he said to me, you're a rabbi, you're Jewish? I said, yes. You're a rabbi? Yes. He said, that's your Zen practice. That's your Zen practice. So there's nothing I find, and, and it's very clear, like Roshi said, we do not bow to the, to the Buddha. In fact, he will often quote the saying that if you meet the Buddha in the street, kill him, to show that we don't worship there are Buddhists that, have, that worship Buddha. We don't, that's not what happens here. Buddha for me and for, I believe, for the rest of us is the symbol of enlightenment, is the symbol for our true nature, our higher nature, and that which we're hoping to realize. And I will bow to that, I will grovel to that, I will do anything to, to, to have that in my life. that answer your question? Thanks. Al, is it? Thanks, Al. For Al, Al I, I don't want to embarrass you, but I've Al been waiting a, for somebody to finally bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> Al is a Holocaust survivor, I just want to mention to you. Still, oh. I think one of the um, experience that I, I and I'm sure other people who saw it after um, the election was, uh, and, and Trump had met with the president and so forth, um, on my daughter's uh, TV news, the news media showed Quaker uh, children at a friend's school that had written letters to Donald Trump uh, asking him to please be kind and good. And they knew he could do that. They were sure that, you know, and I thought to myself, how brilliant, you know, just how, if we could just all maybe write letters to yes. Donald and say, please be kind and good and yeah. please love the animals. Yeah. And, please help. I, I, and in a way, I, and the other thing is a friend of mine has already, um, uh, purchased, uh, uh, rented uh, a house in Annapolis uh, the 21st, January 21st, for the uh, um, March. <clears throat> and I, I'm hesitant. I'm going to go with her. Um, but on the way down and there, and if, we get, if I decide to get on the bus and go, because I'm, at this point, I don't know if we're ready to do this. As you said, I don't know if enough people have sat and breathed properly and meditated properly and acted like, you know, not to be confrontational, right. to be really respectful. I don't think we are. I think the protests need to be put off a little bit. I, I do too. So anyway, that I, if I know, I, I really want to emphasize that with her. So um, I, I think that's one thing. But um, I, I certainly agree. I mean, uh, I think that um, my, my big job now is to pray, 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 and to pray. Meditate a lot so that you know 
on a daily basis connect more with my neighbors, and with my neighbor and I were talking about, I had a great conversation with women in a white restaurant the other day. So, um, and everybody talked very well. There were the Trump voters all on one side, there was my friend and I, but we all listened to each other. And, um, you know, I said things like, um, you know, we just have to really practice this uh, um, smiling, reaching out, for and we have to really try to be mindful, fiercely mindful all the time of our presence with others. And I and like your using I, yeah. I like your use of the word fiercely mindful because this is going to take work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not about denying the pain and the hurt and the no. injury and the grief. <clears throat> And that takes work. Work. Any kind of recovery from grief and loss takes work. So we can't underestimate how difficult this is going to be, not because of the opposition, but because the work within us is where the most difficult part is. You know, it's the most difficult part work of all. You know, when I was talking about, again, Martin Luther King and the Freedom Riders, um, with someone earlier today, the first thing out of her mouth was, but they trained. And I said, exactly. We need to train. We need to train 10,000 more hours and then 10,000 more hours and then 10,000 more hours. And that's where it's got to be. It has to begin. It has to begin with a willingness on my part to do the work before I open my mouth. <laughs> because if I don't, it's so, you know, Chico says it all the time. Ego is so much more powerful than me, okay? And I guarantee if I don't do the work, you know, the, I often say to people, there are days in my life when I must muster up all the compassion in the universe for some people. And I do. But the only way I can do that is that spot right there every day of my life, every morning of my life. And... We, and reciting the vows that I've been taking for 30-some years. However innumerable all beings are, I vow to love them all. That, uh, again, as Joan Halifax, she said, you know, again, we don't get to keep our vows just with good people, you know. You see, that's not what it's about. So perhaps maybe we can try to see Donald Trump not as the guy we don't want in the White House, but as our next greatest teacher. So it's like, okay, what is it in me that's Trump? 
what part of me right. is Donald Trump? Yeah. You right. know, how am I judgmental about, oh, this stupid whatever, you know, and yeah. it goes on all the time. I hear it all the time from really well-meaning liberals. Yeah. You know, we've been fighting wars. Racist? Did he invent it? We have 40% of black men in prisons. They're 14% of the population. It's systemic racism that's been going on in this country for a long time. You say the wars, they weren't for peace. They were for money, and they were for oil. We've been sleeping on the job. We've been really naive, and it's time to wake up because the life has been okay. You know, we've been sort of get by enough money and you know a nice house whatever we have and we don't have it's like we kind of it's okay but you know people who didn't vote for Hillary in all those states out west they had nothing to lose so they bought from the snake salesman snake yeah. oil salesman because what difference did it make yeah. they weren't going the old way you know so it's like all right let's get compassion so I'm seeing it like a huge wake up and possibility that I've been waiting for since the 60s. Yeah. And we've gone backwards since yeah. the 60s as far as I feel. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm energized. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we have to be careful. Ken Wilber wrote a book called Boomeritis. And, and <laughs> Boomeritis, that's the name of the book. And what, this is what Boomeritis is. Postmodernist, green, mean people. We love everybody. We need to be inclusive of everybody. We need to not judge anybody. We need to, all religions are equal, all philosophies are equal, all people are equal. And then you say to them things like, oh, child molesters. No, not them. Nazis, not them. People who don't believe we're all equal. No, we don't, we, we don't accept them. So wait, wait, let me get this straight. You love everybody, you accept everybody, everybody's okay, and now you have your list of who's off that list. And what, what, what I, Roshi and I were speaking of, and what I hear Roshi saying just now, is there shouldn't be anybody off that list. So be careful if you say, yes, I'm this warm, loving, accepting human being, but I don't accept Donald Trump, and I don't accept these people, and I don't accept, it doesn't mean you have to like what they're doing, we talked about that earlier. Condemning the process or the vision doesn't mean you condemn the person. We are not, we are all Buddhists. So we are not to condemn each other, but we can condemn what people do. If somebody takes advantage of me, like you said, I'm not inviting them over for dinner. But I love them as a manifestation of God, as a manifestation of Buddha nature. Time and time again, you've heard me say, there's no problem with having a thief in your house for dinner. You just don't let them get near the jewelry. So there are always going to be things to oppose. Again, I'm going to share with you Martin Luther King's words. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, 
who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. He also wrote, and in every one of us, Maisie, there's a war going on. It's a civil war. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live. There is a civil war going on in your life. And every time you set out to be good, there's something pulling on you, telling you to be evil. It's going on in your life. Every time you set out to love, something keeps pulling on you, trying to get you to hate. Every time you set out to be kind and, nice and say nice things about people, something is pulling on you to be jealous and envious and to spread evil gossip about them. There's a civil war going on. There is a schizophrenia, as the psychologist and the psychiatrist would call it, going on within all of us. And there are times that all of us know somehow that there is a Mr. Hyde and a Dr. Jekyll in us. There's a tension at the heart of human nature. And whenever we set out to dream our dreams and to build our temples, we must be honest enough to recognize it. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha said, if you do not conquer that first, nothing will change in the world. We are what we think, we are what we believe, we are our opinions, all of those things. And if you do not conquer that civil war within you, you will never end war in the world. The wars of the world, everything from the, 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 the days of the Romans through the great world wars, through Vietnam, through Afghanistan, through the, the ones in the streets and the cities in our country and all over the world going on now, all of them are a reflection of that internal civil war that Martin Luther King addresses here. And the Buddha said, if you never conquer that first, back to going down on the right, if, you, if you're not, if you haven't conquered that civil war, you can't go try to prevent civil war in Washington. And that's all I'm saying. My neighbors uh, is trying to get a group of people together, and we're doing it tomorrow. And I think where I feel disappointed and not knowing how to handle the climate that we're in is that this was meant to be for people, a nonpartisan, and it was invited to right wing, left wing, believers, non believers, whatever, for everyone to congregate and get together and try to work together and um, de escalate. Mm -hmm. And the invitation was on uh, through a few different things, but on <laughs> on Facebook, which I'm I don't know. But um, <laughs> she, we were met with such 
hostility. And people said, well, it was like, it was really, they were suspicious of what we were doing. And, you know, why do people need a safe place to congregate? Why do people need to do, like, what is this about? Why, you know, we don't understand what's going on. You know, it's the liberals that are uh, doing all the terrible things. And, and we said, well, if, these, if it's not for you, then don't come. You know, it's okay, but this is meant to bring people together and to work with it. And we're all going to meet, but it's going to be all people that are like-minded. It's nobody's going to, you know, come together. It's just going to be us. And, and uh, the one thing I can take away from tonight, I'm so glad I came, is that, too. is that I can take what I've heard tonight and maybe take it to them mm -hmm. and, and go from that point of view. But I'm just really feeling very frustrated. And... I am a hippie and I am a liberal, and my neighbor told me that, and, <laughs> and I think he muttered communist under his breath, and I, you know, and I and I said thank you and I blew him a kiss and I walked away. And you hippie? I, yeah, and you know, I, that's what hippies do. I know, and I'm surrounded by very staunch, yeah, just you know, and and I can't help but believe from what I've learned. In is that I'm there for a reason, but I'm really struggling right now. I really am. And, and this thing that we're doing tomorrow, I just thought I would have, I guess I'm disappointed and I should have had no attachment to it of the outcome of what would happen. And it's, it's just I, very frustrating. Yeah. Um, I think that just as I said about uh, the protest in Washington, I think we're, we're jumping too quickly, and I think everybody needs to take a breath. Everybody needs to settle down and get quiet. This is no different than learning that a loved one in your family died. And so we're all in this process called grieving. And when we're feeling like this, this is not the time to be having philosophical, ideological, political discussions. So I. I, I would encourage, if you're, uh, I thought I heard you ask what to bring to that tomorrow. I would encourage that everybody get very quiet, hold each other's hands, and maybe even hold each other if they're hurting that bad, and just take care of one another, and hold the discussion off till later. It's like any couple's counseling. You don't discuss the problem while you're angry, okay? You don't discuss the problem while you're resentful, you're saying. So you wait, for, you, you get that, you get that time to, you know, today my, uh, my daughter has a playmate with her and all day and, they, and, you know, they love each other, these two girls, and they just get excited about each other's company and about two o'clock this afternoon, Katie comes to me and she's all upset and they can't talk to each other and they can't be in each other's company and so the, the solution was, okay, you both need a time out away from each other, okay? So she calmed down, she calmed down. In a matter of minutes, they were playing again, okay? So I think, again, uh, and we are going, this is the beginning of this conversation. I am committed to have more conversations like this. Uh, and at the same time, I think this is a time for everybody to take a breath, go through the grieving process. Like, again, there's that civil war going on inside people. That man who said the things he says to you, those people who are on Facebook, they, they know not what they do, okay? They're not ready, you know, back to Chica, what do we do with the stranger? They're not even ready to listen 
And if you're not ready to listen, you can't communicate. And if you can't communicate, nothing's going to change, and so forth. So we need to realize, and that's one of the problems of living in our culture. Life is a process. Now, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child. Now I'm adult. But there was a process that was in place that I followed to get to adulthood. I wasn't, I, my seven-year-old is not going to have the capacity to be empathetic and compassionate, the doctors say, until puberty, because that part of the brain isn't even formulated. And there are people who, in adult bodies who that part of the brain never formulated, okay, because of their environment or something. So, you know, Rabbi and I were talking about this earlier when we were sharing, you know, uh, he was sharing with me about uh, Wilbur stuff and all. Again, there's a process. We have to understand that we, we have to apply the process. And right now, I don't think protesting is in, in part of the process, and I don't think having these discussions, ideological, philosophical, or political, is the process. I think now is the time for healing. And healing can only come from, you know, reaching out and holding. So it might, it might be helpful you know, if, there, if there is going to be a discussion. I agree with the, with the Roshi that uh, it's best not. But we can take a lesson from the world of chaplaincy. So I help to train chaplains, hospice chaplains, and I work as a hospital chaplain. And one of the things that we teach people in, tra in training chaplains is don't listen to what the person says. Experience what they're feeling. So when somebody says, the world and the president, what's the emotion that's coming through? Fear, worry, concern. And if you, how are you going to react to somebody who's fearful, worried, concerned? Like Roshi said, you know, little physical contact or sitting quietly or a hug or something like that. To get into to a, uh, it's, we're back to the chew toy. It's, yeah, I'm going to chew on this and you're going to chew on that. And we're doing the chew toy. So it may be a good practice to, when somebody's, when you're talking to somebody, it works in your, in your own life. By the way, it works wonderfully with family members. You know, how often a child, I, I have grown children, I have grandchildren, and, you know, my children will call up and say, I'm, you know, I'm dealing with this and this and this and this and this. And there's such a tendency to say, well, let me tell you what to do. Or let me give you advice, son. And instead, to ask yourself, what is that person feeling? And can I, can I help them? Can I, can I um, acknowledge their feelings? That, yes, you, you seem to be feeling this way or that way. Um, so that's one way of approaching it. Don't forget the words. Go what's going on in the heart. Try to take the perspective of the other person. It's one of the, the signs of spiritual development. How many perspectives can you take? Can you put yourself, for instance, in the other person's shoes and feel what they're feeling? Now what are you going to say? Roshi demonstrated that when he talked about Trump sitting with Obama, you know, to, to, to say, oh, this is what this man must be feeling. And if, if you had a private moment with him shortly after that and you wanted to do something, you may, may would have said, we, you know, um, you seem to be maybe a little uncomfortable. I don't know if he copped to it, but, you know, what was, how, what was that experience like for you? So that, if you have to talk, hopefully not, but that's a possibility. Hello. <laughs> Don't you think we are overreacting a little bit? I mean, you're part of the tragedy and the grieving process, and we move on. And 
this is just an election. Two people running for office, and, and, and basically two bad choices, and, and people voted for one and not the other. Yeah. I don't know if we'll have we'll be having this session if Hillary Clinton won the election. So, right, uh, and that's something to, to, to yes. that's a very good point. We wouldn't be having this discussion. Yeah. What does that yeah. tell you? Yeah. Uh, let let me respond to that with what I was going to say because I this is my response to that. Uh, I don't. I, I have a confession to make, and so here I am after forty years a monk, and I'm going to make a confession to you. I don't know if we're all one. <laughs> I don't know if there's life after death, whether it's reincarnation or heaven and hell. I don't know. I cannot tell you I know that there's a God or, or anything like that. But what I do know is this. In my lifetime, there are people I have known for a long time. There are people I've known for a brief time who are no longer here, and I miss them. I have watched people die from terrible diseases. I watched my brother die when they knew nothing about AIDS. I've watched people die with cancer. I've watched people killed on the battlefield. I've put down six dogs that I've loved in my lifetime. What I do know is birth and death is real. And that the time in between these two points in our shared history, our birth and our death, is too short for bullshit. Sit down and have a meal with me. Let's have that Manhattan together. Let's share that glass of wine. Let's feel the wind of spring blow against our face. Let's say hello with a hug. Let's demand intimacy with everything. Because I do know when it is gone, it is gone. And they don't get it back. You don't get it back. And I think that's the more important approach to anything of tragedy. Yes, that's really, all, you know, from, from Olympia, the gods are saying, what the hell? It was just an election. Okay? Yeah, yeah, right. And no one's denying that, and I don't think Robert's suggesting that either. What I heard and what he said is what I just said. We, I can't, I can't respond to it from we are all one. I can respond to it from I can't breathe. Something's wrong with the air. My daughter now has allergies, like out of the yin yang. Something's wrong with the air. Okay. I can see a hungry person in the street freezing in this coming winter, as I've seen many winters. Something's wrong with that in the richest nation in the world. I can respond to that. And that's where I intend to do my work, because that's where I do my work at that level. 
So this is not a philosophical, ideological, political reaction that I bring to this discussion tonight. This is a heartfelt concern for those issues. And as I said earlier, this election only surfaced them better than anything else could have. What, what Robert said, we wouldn't be talking about these concerns, would we, if Hillary Clinton was elected? We would have assumed, we, well, not all of us, we would have assumed, we would have assumed that, oh, it's all going to get taken care of. But, Well, I've been having this conversation for 40 years. Okay. All right. But the point is, is that the people complaining now about what happened on the November 8th, many of them would not have been complaining. Many of them would have not have even think of coming to this conversation tonight. Okay. That's the point. Okay. Let us love one another. And if those words are difficult to grasp, Again, for me, they get real easy when I think of what could happen for my, for my daughter and her generations the days ahead. Let it, when I think of the people, again, who have died in my life from tragedy and disease, when I think of you know, the guy I bumped into one Christmas in Center City, Philadelphia, that had no shoes on his feet, Let's just get human about this. And again, we have become, I think I heard Maisie say it earlier, so jaded in the world we live in because it's, life's been nice, but not for everybody. Not for everybody. And guess what? As I said not too, a few moments ago, the everybody that it hadn't been nice for put him in the White House. Lou, you're the last one. Um, I have a respect. Um, what you have said before, the civil war within ourselves, that's more important than the election. Because the fact is, um, I did vote. And who won? I couldn't do it now, to be truthful. I don't like either one. So I voted for the one I thought would be better. And the thing was is that I realized there's so many hungry people. If whoever got in, they're still going to be hungry. So we have a small little church. It's a derivative of uh, Roman Catholic. It's called the American Catholic Church. So we allow a lot of people. We have out. It's really more open. So one of the women had passed away. And what she wanted to start was a food project. So our church is so small, we can't handle all the food that's coming in. So we joined with the Methodist Church. They have a huge area we could store food. So did I give a damn who would? No. So what I decided to do, to fight my own civil war myself, I figured I'm not giving enough. So what am I doing? I'm joining the project. Okay? So I'm saying to myself, I really don't care who won. It's up to me to do a change like you yourself. So my change is so many people that are hungry. So why don't I do something? Okay. So I don't, like, again, I hate to use the word, I don't do that anymore. Everything it changed. Has to do within myself. Everything changed and nothing changed on November 8th. Yeah. 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 Roshi, can I ask you something? Yeah. The 2016 presidential election made me believe that 
go surreal, it can go down. What I mean is, the ghost of J. Edgar Hoover is still alive and running around causing havoc in society. Historically, unfortunately, nothing good has ever come to any society in the world where men have come to power sowing the seeds of division mm -hmm. through the emotions of anger, resentment, and bigotry. I don't know any society where any good came from that. Unfortunately, we may have some dark days ahead for our country. Hopefully that won't happen. I pray that it doesn't. And tomorrow the sun will rise, and as individuals, all of us here, it is always a glimmer of hope until the sun doesn't rise in the morning. And we must be that hope for each other. We must feed the poor where they are hungry, give drink to those who are thirsty, and stop expecting the people in government power to do it for us, because they aren't there for that purpose. We go back to the Richard Rohr's quote from the prophets, do not be daunted when principalities and powers disappoint you. That's what they do. And don't fight anger with anger. And don't fight anger with anger, and hatred with hatred, and resentment with resentment. And like Krishna Das and Rab Das's teacher Babaji said, love people, feed people. That's it. Love people and feed people. So before you go, I have an um, announcement to make that fits right in with our discussion tonight. If you want to do the work of that internal civil war, there's a great opportunity coming in December, between December 7th and December 11th, when we train here in the monastery for those four or five days in the annual tradition of Odohatsu Sashi. It is a time in which the monastery devotes itself to complete silence and all of our activities, whether sitting and meditating, walking and meditating, eating in silence, doing a work practice in silence, all of it is dedicated to battling the demons within so that we may become more peaceful, so that we may become more loving, and we may become more compassionate. When the monks and the students over the years here at Pine Wind and before then in Sinemitsun, when the rabbi did his first Arahatsu Sashin, take to the cushion, we sit not for our own enlightenment, but for the enlightenment of the world. And so we dedicate Odahatsu Sashin every year in December for the transformation and the awakening of hearts throughout the world. But it is a powerful experience that uh, I'm talking more about uh, from a very intimate place. When I sit in this room, you know, we begin on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock and we will go through to Sunday afternoon around noon. And when I sit in this room, late at night after many hours with other people sitting in this room with me. There is a there is a experience of truly that oneness that again we don't know about that comes through. When people muster up the courage to face their demons and to bring this miracle of Zazen as the means to defeating those demons together, 
It is an experience over which I have never got and an experience I promise you over which you will never get. So you can find out more about participating with us part of the time or the entire time between December 7th and December 11th in Odahatsu Sashin. And whether you do it part of the time or all the time, uh, do it. And you'll see what I mean. It's one of those facts of life. I just told you about it, and I've told you about it passionately from my experience, but you have no idea what I'm talking about until you do it. Until you do it. So I invite you to register and take part in Orohatsu Sashin, and I also invite you to become a member of this community and help us, again, do the work that we have been committed to do uh, since 1975, the work that you've enjoyed tonight and many of you before tonight, and will continue as long as I'm alive and as long as the rabbi stays healthy too, and, and Emio back there, and Ritsumiko, well, she's gonna live forever, she's in Florida, yeah, so, so, and all of that. And as always, and I mean this from my heart, it has been a privilege to be with you tonight.